Hello and welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Be Uncluttered. I'm Rebecca Mazzino and with me is Tara Tuttle and together we are going to help you on your journey to a life free of clutter. Hi and welcome to this week's show. Now this week we're talking about the idea of a tiny home and you've probably heard of that concept before. A tiny home is like a small but permanent place to escape the hustle and bustle of city life and all the high-cost materialism that goes along with our modern lifestyles. But have you ever really thought about what living in a tiny home might be like and what sacrifices and rewards might be involved when you give up all that size and the excess stuff that was in your big home? Today we have Michael Bartz with us who has decided to make the shift to live in a tiny home with his partner and cats, and so we're all going to learn together about what it means to go tiny. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks, Tara. Um, I just thought as I was uh, in showing you there that I've said escape the hustle and bustle of city life, but I'm guessing there are tiny homes in cities too. I mean, there's obviously apartments and that kind of thing, but when I think of tiny home, I always think of them being, you know, out of town or closer to the woods or something like that. Are there, mm-hmm. Do tiny homes exist in cities? Um, they do, yeah. Some people put their tiny homes maybe in someone's backyard, possibly. Uh, that's usually probably the most common way that you would have a tiny home in a city. Uh, you, it's usually less common because of zoning. So mm. tiny homes, as some people might know, aren't really a legal way to live and that a lot of people live out in the country because there are fewer regulations and, and zoning is a little bit easier that way. So some people definitely do live in a tiny house in the city, but potentially that could come with a little more risk and a little more... Um, yeah, a little more risk. So it's, yeah, it's right. possible. Yeah, but but most people are, are out of the city. Okay, cool. I Yeah, as I was saying that, I was thinking I might just be generalizing here because yeah, that's no. my idea. But so to give people a clear picture of what we're really talking about when we say tiny, let's go through it. So the size of your tiny home is 200 square feet. Is that right? That's right, yes. So for those wondering the difference between what is just a small house and a tiny one, it's actually defined. So I've got um, the details here from the International Residential Code Appendix Q, and it states that a tiny home is a dwelling that is 400 square feet or less in floor area, excluding lofts. So when you compare that 400 square feet, or in your case, Michael, 200 square feet, to the average size of a house in Canada, which in 2017 was just shy of 1,800 square feet, you can see why these homes get the name tiny, can't you? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's quite a bit smaller than an average house. Yeah, and houses just seem to be getting bigger and bigger. So those that stat of 1,800 square feet was from 2017, so it's probably even bigger than that now. Yeah, I mean, you could potentially just round up to the 2,000 square feet and it's, you know, 10 times the size of, of our tiny home. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a stack of questions that I want to ask you um, and I'm going to jump right in there and say four of the top reasons that I could find for people wanting to move into a tiny home are affordability, efficiency, eco-friendliness or minimalism. So can you tell us a bit about your story and how you came to be the owner of a tiny home. And I want you to tell us what motivated you. Like what was it one of those benefits or did you have your own reason for wanting to go tiny? Yeah, absolutely. Some of those benefits were definitely why I wanted to go tiny. So 
my journey to Living Tiny started about six years ago or so. I was 28 years old, and I had actually just gotten out of uh, an eight-year relationship with my my college girlfriend. We were together, and we thought we were going to be together forever, and and things did not work out. And it was always going to be, okay, it's we. What are we going to do with our life? Where are we going to go? And then suddenly it was just me, and, and I had to really reevaluate what my life looked like and, and what my goals and my priorities were as, as a, a single person. And so it was very much a, a transition point. And, you know, it took some time and I thought about it. And some things that came up for me were that, well, maybe I want to go back to school and, and get some more education. And then I thought, maybe I also want to travel. You know, I've been living in the same kind of area of, of the country. And I thought maybe I wanted to go around and see the rest of the country or, or do some more international traveling. That really appealed to me. And then, of course, I thought being, you know, 28, I'm almost reaching 30. I had been renting my entire life. Perhaps buying a property would be a, a good idea as, a, as an investment. And that was the least exciting option for me, partly, again, because I wanted to travel. I didn't know where I was going to end up, but also mm-hmm. just the idea of of being in debt for that long a period and, and being potentially committed to a place for uh, for a very, very long time. So when those ideas started to come up and I was thinking and I was looking around and, and I discovered Tiny Living probably through YouTube videos or, or a documentary or something. And the more I thought about it, the more that that appealed to probably all the things that that I wanted to explore because if I wanted to go back to school, that's really about learning and, and challenging myself. And with the tiny house, because I built it myself, that was a huge project that I could undertake and I could read books and I could study up and I could do research and then I could apply those skills to to building a house. And then there was that travel component where I didn't know where I wanted to end up. And because most tiny houses are on wheels, that was another great thing that I could move around if I wanted to. I was not stuck in one place. So that was very attractive to me. And then again, that idea of buying a house on a foundation somewhere in a city, potentially feeling tied down to a place and and having a lot of money into a place that also seemed less attractive. And with tiny homes, a lot of them are are more affordable. So all of those things kind of culminated. In, and, and for me, it was like, yes, I'm, I, that's what I want to do. So I spent a year doing research and I saved, put together $25,000 for the project. And then I was at a, a bit of a crossroads where I thought, okay, this is really not a normal thing to do. It's not a conventional way to live. I could take that money and again, go to school and not have any student debt or very little. I could travel for a very long time. I could put a big down payment on my house, but I, I, would, I was committed to that project. And then I decided to go for it because talking about those key benefits, like I said, affordability, although there are some caveats to that, that was a huge thing. And then potentially along with affordability, that lower cost of living, if I could lower my daily costs, that was very attractive to me. And then environmentalism is a, a big part of my life. So having a smaller footprint, using fewer resources to, to heat the house, and then having that ability to be off grid, because if you want to be off grid with a, a 2000 square foot house, that is a, a very different conversation than 200 square feet. So mm-hmm. I would, would be able to live my values that way. And then again, that flexibility in, in where I lived and and potentially kind of uh, getting around housing prices. So, so with a tiny house, you know, I, I built it to a certain standard. And if I live on the west coast of Canada and Vancouver, it's very expensive to live. So now I have a very nice house in the west coast or if I was up north or wherever it might be. So it, it kind of freed me up to where how much things cost depending on where I lived. 
And the last thing for me was it was a bit of kind of a life hack too. I really like figuring out kind of ways to kind of game the system too. So living in this way was a way for me to to live in a different way and and unconventionally. Oh, I love that. It's a really good um, description. Like there's uh, there's so much in that and so many benefits, and it's it's quite nice that you kind of touch on a lot of them. So so in the end, where where is your tiny house? You don't have to give us your address, obviously, no, but no, where, whereabouts in the world are you located? And was it hard to choose that location? Yeah. So we did end up on a farm, as I mentioned with zoning. It's a bit trickier in the city. And that was that was always a concern of mine that if we lived in the in town, that someone's going to knock on the door and say, hey, you can't live here. Uh, you have to move on. Or I don't know what would happen. And I didn't want to put that risk on on us so a farm was always a natural choice and then we just kind of liked that lifestyle as well so in some ways that was a natural choice and and the place that we found was was actually quite an easy choice once we found it but the way we found it's kind of a, a fun story so uh, my dad is is a musician and he's in his 60s or so and all of his followers his groupies are also in their 60s and 70s and 80s and when I was building the house, part of it was also about community and relationships. And and I was exploring all that unconventional living and, and different ways of living. And I thought, instead of paying money, I would really love to find a place that I could help someone on their property. And for me, when that came to mind, it was probably someone who was a senior citizen, maybe, who needed their walk shoveled or they needed help around the property. And then I could offer my services and just do some odd jobs and, and pay for the spot. So I was at one of my dad's concerts and he asked who here gets the the local paper and everyone's hands went up because of course, you know, they're in their sixties and seventies mm-hmm. and they still get the paper. And that made me think, I thought, Hmm, that's interesting because I didn't know how I was going to find this, this place mm-hmm. to park. And so I just put an ad in the local paper. I didn't say tiny house. I said a trailer, but I said, looking to park my, my trailer on your property and we could do a, a, work for rent kind of thing. I'll, I'll do some odd jobs to pay for the spot. And, and I was actually quite overwhelmed by, by responses oh, really? uh, because of that. De- yeah. Because of that demographic. And, and I think also because especially on a farm, there's, there's so much space and because mm-hmm. we are off grid, you're essentially taking up a little corner. It's not that big of an imposition and you're, you're offering, you know, free help with, with stuff. So it, it was a definitely made sense for people who saw the ad. So quite a few responses. We ended up seeing a few places and we met a couple who actually are in their eighties and still farming. And we found them so inspirational and, and they were so positive and we just loved them from the moment we met them. So that was such an easy choice. We said, yep, this is the place we are going to move here. So that was um, the winter of 2020. And then the spring, once the house was done, we, we moved it onto, onto the farm. So you say we there, so obviously you are not living in your tiny home on your own, or you didn't find the space on your own. So who, can you tell us about your partner? Was she, did she come in partway through this journey or was she there from the beginning when, when you were doing the research and, and scoping out the project? No, she came in when I had actually started the build. So my partner is, is Sarah and yeah, I was just doing the framing when, when we had met. And so I had already started um, um, yeah, and that's, and then we became friends and we became uh, more than friends. Was it, was it an adjustment for her? Because obviously this, you know, it was a, a passion project for you or, and something that you had come around to deciding worked for you in your lifestyle. Was it hard to convince her or was she on board from the beginning? 
No, she was on board from the beginning. So she's a, a very special person. She came from Spain, actually, to come to Canada. She got her PhD in microbiology and then moved to Canada to work in research. And so she was very much coming with a suitcase. She had very little. And when she was finishing her PhD on her orchard in Spain, she lived there in essentially an off-grid little little cabin. She had a little wood stove to heat things. So she already kind of, before we had met, was preparing for tiny living without really knowing it. So she was really the, the perfect person for me. And we actually met through a, a site called Couchsurfing. So, and that's actually a really big part of, of my journey in, in hosting and, and meeting different people. So we met through that and I was showing her around my city and we became friends. And so she was a, a traveler already and, and she already had been living kind of that minimalist life back in Spain and coming to Canada with very little. So although it was not a, a conventional way of living, she was definitely on board when it came to to the tiny house. Oh, that's good. That's a real bonus. It would have been would have been really tough if you met the girl of your dreams and she wanted the big house and ten closets full of clothes and you know. Yeah, and I think in some ways that it wouldn't have been the girl of my dreams yeah. because I was so dedicated to this project and this way of life that, especially in that stage, if I met someone who said, I want a big house and all this stuff, I go, okay, thank you. Bye. It just, yeah, yeah. I think part of the reason that we clicked was because we were on the same wavelength with, with the, the tiny living. Yeah. Right. Now you mentioned that you took on the task of building your tiny home yourself, which is not what all tiny home folks do. Um, a lot of people get them pre-made or design. They might design themselves and someone else builds them. Sometimes you can outsource the entire project. What was the motivation for you to do it yourself? And then what what did you have to do or what did you have to think about and take into consideration? Because I'm guessing you've got all sorts of weather up there and you know, you're talking about living off grid. So tell me about water and electricity and the environmental impact. Like you know, you said you did a lot of research, but tell me about the building project and why you wanted to do it yourself and what you had to think about. For sure. Yeah, no, you definitely, there are, there's a lot to consider, especially in Canada with, with four seasons and yes, being off grid. So I wanted to build mine myself, partly because growing up with my dad, I was always building things in the garage and tinkering and, and he taught me to weld and do all sorts of things. And he was always fixing up houses. We, he bought a small, actually his first house was 600 square feet mm. and then he fixed that up and then they moved, we moved to a, a larger house when we were quite young. So I was always handy. I was always hands-on and I was actually, after I went to art school, I, I was a framer for a time and I always thought of, oh, it would be so cool to build a log cabin or build my own home, but a, a regular house like just seemed like just way too, too big of a project. So it, I decided that, especially in, in looking at different designs online. Like it's great that there are people who are building tiny houses or that you could potentially get a, a used tiny house, especially from that environmental side. But for me, it was, I wanted to take on this big project. Like I talked about that learning aspect. Cause if I just bought one that doesn't involve the learning and the growing and, and mm -hmm. having that, that buy-in and also just looking at some of the designs online uh, that I saw that none were really quite quite exactly the right fit in that okay, I, I would have changed where the kitchen is or, but where's the the water tanks and how do you get the power? And, and just, it wasn't quite what I wanted. So I thought, why don't I just do the whole thing myself? I've got the time I'm, I'm into this project. So I decided to, to just do it myself. And it took four years, actually three years, part-time when I was still working in post-secondary and then one year full-time. And there were 
it's no underestimate that it's thousands and thousands of considerations when you have to think about even just the layout of the space. You have to decide on where things are going to be. And especially being on a, a trailer, you have to think about weight distribution and and how is that going to move. But also, yeah, getting your water in and, and then storing it and how does it flow through the system. And of course, being in Canada, insulating it. You, and or, so I've got a kind of a maintenance room under the bathroom and that's all insulated and the furnace is in there. So you have to definitely consider that. And it's, you're essentially building a house. And, and I actually think that it's even more complicated than that because most houses have a very standard layout. You have a spot for your oven, you have a spot for your fridge and your kitchen. Here's your bathroom, here's your bedroom. With a tiny house like that, it just, it opens up so many more possibilities and you have to be so efficient in your design of the house that you can't just put in a standard oven and a standard fridge. They have to be smaller. So now exactly how big is my oven and how big is my fridge and where does my countertop end and where does my living room start? And sometimes those things overlap and putting your bedroom in a loft up above. And so there are so many design things that you have to consider that it uh, it definitely takes a lot of time. Yeah, right. And so is there a good tiny house community out there? If you had questions about this kind of stuff, how, where do you get answers from? You know, I guess there's like there's building associations and all sorts of that kind of thing for people that are building their own homes. Where do you go for advice or help or discussion when you're building? Yeah, a tiny I mean, home? for sure that there are lots of resources, definitely online. When I first started, it was a lot of YouTube videos, lots of reading books. Um, since then, there has been the movement has been growing, and that there are a lot more workshops that are being offered that people can go to. So, actually, when I in 2016, when I started my research and looking into how to build the house, I ended up going down to Colorado for the National Tiny House Jamboree. It was a convention of tiny houses, and oh, I found cool. that yeah, it was fun. I found that very uh, very inspirational because part of that was they had about 40, I think at the time, tiny houses on display. So people would bring their tiny houses and so you could see them. And for me, that was a very important learning opportunity because seeing a video, uh, watching a, a yeah, YouTube video, reading a book, is, it's not really the same as hands-on learning. So seeing those houses and talking to people who had done it was really helpful in in not only learning, but also just giving me the courage to take on such a big project because it is potentially overwhelming and there's a lot of uncertainty. And so seeing people who had done it was very helpful. And and I think, yeah, generally, even in Canada, there is a movement growing where there are more things being offered that way. Of course, we're not as big as the state, so there are just fewer people, but there is definitely support out there. So you mentioned um, weight distribution be you know and the ability to be able to move your tiny house around is your tiny house on like on wheels can you relocate it or is it fixed now on the farm no it is yeah it's on a, a trailer so it's a 24 foot gooseneck trailer it's got two 7000 pound axles so it's a 14000 pound is is the max weight and mm-hmm. a lot of tiny houses build them on trailers part of it's that portability but also it's actually gets right now it gets around a coding issue mm-hmm. so with houses you have to pass certain codes and right now as far as i know i mean that may have changed with with the coding but you don't have to have an inspection and have things get passed so you can kind of get around some of those minimum um size standards mm-hmm. that's why tiny houses are you know, 400 square feet, 200 square feet, you could probably never find a house in town that's 200 square feet. It just, they wouldn't build them. Mm -hmm. And so 
a way to get around that is to put it on a trailer. And that really frees you up to do a lot of things. It does add some more complications, not only layout, but also when I talk about weight distribution, even just overall weights. So a big part of that is how much do the things that I put in their way, even the siding, even the interior walls, the framing, all these things add up and, and things that you may not, again, not think about with a traditional house because it's just on a foundation, no big deal. You really have to take into consideration how much, not only stuff you're putting in, but how much things weigh that when, when you build the house. So it's definitely a lot to think about. Mm. So do you have plans in the future to to move or relocate somewhere else? Or do you do you think, you know, for the foreseeable future, you're happy in the spot you're in? Yeah, we, uh, we're happy in the spot we're in. Uh, when I started the build, well, when I started planning, actually, I, um, I thought about possibly doing like a documentary project where I took the house across the country and talked mm-hmm. about unconventional living. And so I tried to build the house as relatively light as possible and tried to make it as mobile as possible. But in, in doing the build again, taking four years, I put so much sweat equity, thousands of hours into building. And when we moved it onto the farm, I was just on pins and needles because it was this, this is my baby. This is my, you know, yeah. with my project that I don't want something to happen to it. And so now the thought of, you know, moving regularly, taking it across the country on some very sketchy roads, just, I just, I don't like that at all. And, and where we are, we, we really love the owners and, and they love us and like, it's a good relationship. And, so I think that as long as we can maintain that, then I think we would be very happy here. One thing with Sarah is that she doesn't have a permanent position where she's at. She's working for the federal government in research, but it's not a permanent position. So we could potentially move to a different area. But definitely, if I could be here for five years, I think that would be just fine. Now, I want to ask you about the process of moving in. So how much of the stuff that you and your partner had before you went in, did you have to let go of to be able to fit into the tiny space? Yeah, there was definitely quite a bit of downsizing. Um, For me, I think it really started in that year of 2016. I did a very big purge in that I was in that mindset of, okay, I'm going to live in a tiny house. So I started getting rid of a lot of things. A lot of that was like clothing. I think I got rid of probably 70 articles of clothing because I thought I don't need this many pairs of pants or this many shirts. That was quite an easy mm-hmm. thing. I remember I had four bicycles. I, thought, I don't need four bicycles. I just ride one at a time. So I ended up getting rid of a lot of those. And and part of my motivation at that time was also getting that $25,000 together for the project because I didn't mm-hmm. want to go into debt. So anything that was worth something that I hadn't been using, I was definitely selling. Um, so that was part of my process in, in kind of a, what I would call a kind of a big purge. And then kind of gradually over that time, getting rid of things. Um, but one nice thing is that both Sarah and I, the places we rented were fully furnished. So we never actually bought any couches or a bed or any kind of large a stove, large appliances. Mm-hmm. So that made it a lot easier. And, and again, her coming with just a suitcase, she wasn't accumulating things from the get go. And Part of it is also that we're kind of, we're outdoorsy people and kind of naturally kind of minim, minimalists. So mm-hmm. we didn't have a lot of, of things that, that were just sitting around, things that we, we love, like our hiking gear, our camping gear is, doesn't take up a lot of space and, and it's not going anywhere. So that definitely had to stay. And, and also when we moved to the farm, you know, there was a bit of area where we could store a few things. So that made the transition easier as well. Did you 
create any kind of rules or criteria when you were deciding what what stayed and what you parted with? Yeah, it was it was a little methodical, if I remember correctly, that, yeah, we had to figure out, especially for the kitchen, there's a lot of duplicates and maybe a lot of gadgets that you perhaps wouldn't necessarily need. And so there was definitely a, a choice there. One nice thing about that was that being off-grid in my design, I prioritized fewer electronic appliances because mm-hmm. I wanted to minimize how much solar power I, I needed. And we do, we're on propane. And so that allows us to be off-grid. So in the kitchen, actually, so many of our appliances are are not electric. And mm-hmm. so we have a stovetop popper where you just put on the stovetop and you have a little hand crank and you pop the popcorn. We mm-hmm. found a toaster, a stovetop toaster that just, yeah, you put it on top of the burner and then it toasts the toasts. And what else? Oh, we've got a, a coffee grinder where it's just a hand grinder. It's not uh, an electric grinder. So those are some examples of of off-grid appliances that we we actually had to buy those. Yep. But in doing that, we got rid of so many um, electronic appliances that were A, maybe unnecessary, but B, were bulky and they took up space. And yes, they're nice to have, but maybe they weren't a necessity. So it really that really helped in the transition to have that that mindset and that goal that this is how we want to live. Is that going to use a lot of power? Eh, maybe we don't need it. Maybe we can get by without it. And so that definitely helped with, with especially in the kitchen area. And just generally, I would say if, if there was something that I had, you know, does this add value to my life? Is this something that really I am using every day? Or is it just something I'm holding on to for that, that just in case that maybe is never really going to come up? So one actually example that I really love when we talk about the kitchen is that I'm not a sentimental person, but I, uh, when I was growing up, I remember my, my grandmother um, cooking in the kitchen with me and we would always be making all sorts of delicious food. I was a very young child. She was doing most of the work, but when she passed away, I actually took her, her chef knife and, and as a keepsake. And for me, that was a great thing because I use it every day, mm-hmm. but it's also a sentimental item. So it's, it's practical, but it makes me think of her when, when I'm using it. And so in that way, I can have something to remember her, but it's not a photo or it's not something that's just sitting there collecting dust. Because for for me, my philosophy is very much, you know, better to wear out than rust out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use something and I'm going to make use of it. I'm going to wear it out rather than just having it sit there and collect dust. And well, just in case, and when you're downsizing, when you're living in a tiny house, you just don't have space for those just in case things. And, and that's okay. And you just have to let that go. And so while you were letting stuff go, did you f- figure out anything about yourself, you know, during the process? Did you notice any patterns of the stuff in the the amount of stuff that you had acquired or, you know, things you said you're not overly sentimental, so I'm guessing things like, I don't know, I don't even know if you kept these, things like uh, school or college yearbooks or photos, you know, things like that. Did you find that kind of stuff easy to part with? Or did you find that you own lots of duplicates? Were there any patterns or anything that you noticed? Yeah, I, th- I think it definitely made me look at my priorities. And because it, I had a purpose in in that purging, it made it a lot easier. But for me, I would say, yeah, I don't I think I had a few maybe yearbooks and things. But books definitely were definitely uh, a challenge because, again, the, the learning or that time you spend or you're making notes in it or you're, you're just enjoying that that book that's very difficult to get rid of for me. That was a challenge. Whereas something like, again, the clothing, I'm not a very fashionable person per se. 
And so getting rid of the clothing, that was totally easy. The bikes, mm-hmm. a little more difficult. So I was kind of discovering of, yeah, what were my priorities in in what the things I owned and how I use them. So it definitely was a, a journey that way. Part of the the ease in that was that uh, because the build took so long, it was four years, that was kind of a, a slow progression. So it definitely didn't happen overnight. I didn't say, I'm going to live in a tiny house. And then tomorrow I got rid of all my stuff. It, mm-hmm. That made things a lot easier. So, But it definitely made me, yes, mindful of what do I have that I need and what do I have that I, I don't need and, and I could potentially give to someone else. That's a, another aspect of it too, is that when something is just sitting there and you're, it's stored in your garage, like let's say a drill, for example, mm-hmm. so many people have, have drills just sitting in the garage. They never use them. And, but someone really needs one instead of buying one, they could actually be sharing it with someone else. And it's called the sharing economy. And in that way, you're reducing waste. That's that environmental side but also saving more money too. And then you're also accumulating less things. So I definitely was going into that mindset as well of like when I was downsizing or when I was thinking about living in the tiny house, it was, okay, what do I need in my life to be happy? And is that stuff or is that people and experiences? And, and more and more it became the people and the experiences than the stuff. So it was a lot easier to to get rid of those things. And yeah, looking at those things that I could share, do I really need certain items. Yeah. Kitchen stuff. You pretty much need to have that all the time, but there are certain things that I didn't need to own or keep that I could some borrow from someone else. Mm-hmm. How did it feel completely embracing that life with less? Did you, you know, did you feel anxious initially having, having a lot less stuff or did it feel freeing that you just, you know, you were contained, you had the essentials, but no more? Like, Tell us about the feeling of just owning less. Yeah, no, I definitely was embracing it from the beginning of the project and and definitely feels very freeing for sure. Because when you have more stuff, there's just more stuff to take care of and to sort and moving, especially like anytime I moved, it was just a, just a headache into Mm -hmm. a, you know, a traditional house because it's just so much stuff and, and it takes so much effort and, we we probably we ended up moving to the farm with the house and then put things into the house and that was a, a sorting process and then we ended up getting rid of a lot of things there. But now that we're in the house, although we don't want to move, I think moving would be a lot more a lot easier because mm-hmm. we just have pretty much everything we need in the tiny house. So it's not just hook up and go, but it would be a lot uh, easier process. So I'm really in, enjoying that and embracing that minimalist lifestyle that way. And and there's also just the the financial benefits too, right? Because when you're in a tiny house, it really makes you question, do you need to buy that next thing? Because where am I going to put it, right? We can't, mm. we can't just, just on a whim buy certain things. So it really slows down a lot of other parts of your life too, right? Of, of, of the, the spending habits. And especially I've talked about mindset a little bit. It's like, you're you're doing this for let's say the environmental purpose right environmentalism so what is the environmental impact of me buying more things or if you're doing it because you want to have uh, more affordability in your life okay so is is buying all those things part of that is is when i'm buying fewer things and using the things that i have that's also going to have that financial benefit too right and part of that philosophy for me is that buy me once idea where you buy something of quality that's going to last rather than buying something that's cheap right now and that you're going to have to replace in a few years. So a good example would be a cast iron pan. 
Mm -hmm. it's, it's probably going to outlast me, right? It's going to last for decades and decades and decades, as opposed to a cheap frying pan that's made of aluminum and has a plastic handle and it wears out in a few years and you have to replace it. So looking at the cost of that, although maybe some things are a little more expensive at the start, it's going to last you maybe your whole lifetime. And mm -hmm. in, in the land, it's going to be cheaper and you're also accumulating less things and uh, reducing your environmental impact as well. So I'm, I'm really embracing all of those things in tiny living and, and, and I love it. There are, there are a lot of misconceptions about living in a tiny home and I will put my hand up and say I had a few of them as well, but can you help us set a couple of them straight? And the first one is about pets and kids. A lot of people think if you go tiny, it's a decision that you're going to be on your own or with a partner with no pets or kids for the rest of your life. Is that myth or fact? I would say that is a myth. Um, one caveat to that is that one size doesn't fit all with tiny houses. So people think, oh, it's a tiny house. Well, there you go. No, like even within the tiny house community, you can have a 16 foot single axle tiny house for one person who travels a lot and isn't there at all. And you can have a triple axle, 40 foot, you know, multi, not multifamily. You can have a triple axle, 40 foot family in a tiny house. So although, yes, you can have pets and kids in tiny houses, basically. So the trend is, is probably to slightly bigger tiny houses, especially with those people. Because for our house, the way it is, I would probably say you could not have uh, a couple with two teenagers and a dog. Like it would just, it just wouldn't work. Even we had, so I do have... Uh, in the living room, I designed it so that it can change into a queen size guest bed for guests because that was very important to me in, in, yes, hosting people and having people over when that was appropriate. But if suddenly you had to have, again, two teenagers and the parents are in the loft upstairs and the dogs around and it would just be a lot. I remember when we had even just two friends come over, they brought their suitcases and just have their suitcases and them, the house felt very cramped. And it was fine. We made it work, but it's very much suited to two people without without kids. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, like right now, having a dog would be a little bit tricky. Having cats is a little easier because there are so many different levels and spaces that the cats can go into. And actually, when I was in Colorado, I, I met a couple who they had cats and they actually designed their house around the cats a bit where they could build little walkways and tunnels and things. So the cats had a lot more space to roam around. So one nice thing about tiny houses is that you can design them to suit your needs. So if you're going into it as a couple with two young children, that's going to look different than if you're a single person, again, that's traveling all the time or, or mm -hmm. is not home a lot. So when you're looking at tiny houses, you have to look at what is my lifestyle and, and potentially where is that going to go if, if you are planning on having a family or, or expanding. So you have to definitely take that into consideration. But I think once you've done that, and especially once you're in the tiny house, I feel like it it builds that momentum and you have that mentality where you're you're living in an unconventional way. So why not embrace the unconventional? Don't think that you have to have everything figured out like, okay, where are we going to put the kids in, in this area? Maybe when you get on the property, you build a tree house and they spend a lot of time in the tree house as an mm -hmm. example, right? Like, like how can you make the space fit for you? And, and what I've found is that you can really adapt and, and accommodate it. So you can definitely have pets or kids in a tiny house. You just have to be thoughtful and mindful about how big your house is and, and what your needs are. Okay. Good answer. So 
My next misconception is that all tiny homes are off-grid. Now, I know a lot are, but are they all? No, not all tiny homes are off-grid. And yes, that is a very common thing. Like we talked about being on a trailer and being r- living rurally, you maybe don't know where you're going to be. And and a lot of people are who live in tiny homes have that environmental mindset as well. So being off-grid definitely is a priority for a lot of tiny house people, but it's definitely not um, required again, because with tiny houses, you can, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You don't have to. And and I think part of that is budgetary, like adding those off-grid components adds a lot to the cost and also the complications of, I, I, you know, I really like to do this certain thing and you want to watch a lot of television and you have something that takes a lot of power. You have to consider how much power is that going to take? Right. Mm -hmm. And so you, don't have to be off grid and, and you can be plugged into the grid and maybe you're uh, a retiree who wants to downsize and you don't want to have the the extra work of figuring out your panels and the sun and where the batteries are at and your water hauling your water so you could have a tiny house that is plugged into the grid and hooked up to some sort of water system and and that's still you're still living tiny and actually one thing that people don't consider within this this area of being off grid is actually the environmental aspect because people assume that if you're off grid it's more environmentally friendly and in doing um, talking to experts and and doing reading I've learned that that's not always actually the case because in certain states um, some of the north western northeastern states a lot of their power is hydroelectricity sometimes it's wind power biomass things like that so mm-hmm. if you look at actually where your power is coming from where you live, that could actually mean that plugging into the grid is is potentially not the end of the world when it comes to your tiny house. So, so you don't feel like you have to be off grid. You can still live in a tiny house plugged in and that's just fine. Mm. I know the next one is definitely not true because if all you have to do is follow the hashtag tiny home and there's some amazing images. But talk to me around the misconception about tiny homes all being boring or uncomplicated designs. Yes. No, I think this is quite quite the opposite for sure. I think as we've talked about with tiny houses, you're kind of open to do a lot more with the design of the house. Mm-hmm. And when I was in Colorado, I was just, I was blown away by some of the works of art that people made with their tiny houses. Some roofs that were like, like waves on an ocean or something very artistic, the siding, the way that the the materials they used. So tiny houses are, are actually quite the opposite. For me, I find regular houses super boring. Like, oh great, you live in a regular house and you live a boring life. You know, <laughs> um, No, it, it, you don't live a boring life, but, but yeah, it's, it's very much functional. And it's okay. We put the stove here, the oven here, and here's the two bedrooms, the bathroom. You could be in any house in any country. Yeah, you have no idea. Any part of the world, you know, right? Whereas with tiny houses, I feel like people have embraced that that artistic side as well. I think because it is a smaller space, it's just that much more manageable. It's like, how can we make this thing look super cool? And I think that's really, really amazing. And also, in talking about design, part of it is also uh, functionality too, right? Because when you have two thousand square feet. Uh, you put a room here, room here, you'll figure it out. What's that going to be? I don't know, an office, a bedroom, whatever. With a tiny house, you have to decide like, okay, we have 200 square feet. How are we going to maximize this space so that we can fit the things we need into it and also make it functional? Because there's no point in living in a tiny house and having boxes stacked up and you're trying to get around and it's just a mess. So 
in in designing the tiny house, it's it's anything but boring because you have to get creative with are your stairs going to be drawers as well, and mm-hmm. and how about the bench? We so our our living room area in the bench has storage underneath, and so you're looking at multi purpose spaces. You're looking at how you can make the most effective storage. So I think that also leads to a lot more creative design that I think a lot of regular houses really should adapt to to be more efficient. Mm. Absolutely. So my last misconception that I'd love you to address is that you can't have modern conveniences in a tiny home like a dishwasher or a washing machine. No, yeah, you you definitely can. And as we've talked about, tiny living, at least from my experience, is very much about, you know, what do you need to be happy in and what does your life look like? So some people, you know, they're in a tiny house that's a cabin in the woods and it's a wood-burning stove and they've got a river where they do their laundry or something. They're super off-grid. That's that's what they want to do. Great. But there are some tiny houses that you have like super high-tech modular. They've got Wi-Fi and the thing everything's controlled by their phone and mm-hmm. and so you can definitely have a spectrum of of technology in a tiny house. So people, you can absolutely have a, a washing machine. You can absolutely have a automatic dishwasher, things like that. The only caveat to that would be when you're looking at being off grid, that changes things a little bit. So mm-hmm. if you're plugged in and if you've got a constant water source, that's very easy. But once you're off grid, you have to think about, again, where do I get my power and how much power am I using? And where do I get my water and how much water am I using? And so you can do that, but you just have to take that into consideration if you do want to be off grid, that that's going to be a little more planning, a little more work, but it is definitely possible. Thank you for clearing those up. That's good. Can I talk about one more myth that it wasn't on your list? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think one myth that really, when I was thinking about it, came to me was that people have this idea that, okay, I can buy a, a tiny house and I can live mortgage free and I'm going to be debt free. And they see that although affordability is a consideration, I think that there's a little more to it than that, Mm -hmm. that it's not just as simple as I'm going to buy a $10,000 used tiny house. I'm going to live off grid and I'm going to, my cost of living will be next to nothing. Uh, I would definitely reconsider that idea. Uh, Where we are, we are in, I would say the perfect situation that we found a family that has been very generous and has allowed us to to live on the property and there is no money exchanged. I'm, I'm helping out on the farm. Um, so that means that we have no rent at all. We have some utilities. They are very little, yes. Um, and because I built the house myself, the cost was maybe $40,000 or so and I paid cash for it. So I am in the perfect situation when you think about living debt-free, mortgage-free, but you could also have a tiny house. There are some tiny houses that cost $100,000 if you bought one that's super fancy and mm-hmm. it was a lot bigger and you had someone else build it because I had thousands of hours of sweat equity. You can probably add mm-hmm. another 40000 just in labor and that's cheap labor. So now you're looking at, okay, I'm going to spend $100,000 on this decent tiny house that I need to live in four seasons, You know, live properly. And now I have to park it somewhere because you don't just put it in a park and or some mm-hmm. random parking lot. You want to have somewhere nice to live. And so now you're looking at potentially paying for a spot. So now you're paying for the house. You're potentially taking out a loan and you may not be able to get a mortgage for the house because it's not a traditional house. So now you're getting a higher interest loan. You're having to potentially pay for the spot or pay for land. And so those costs can add up. And then, and how do you, again, how do you get your power and things like that? So I think that is one myth that I've seen in people who aren't in the tiny house community is that it's 
so much cheaper and so much more affordable. And why don't I just do that? Mm -hmm. There's kind of a reason that you, you, you can do it and we are doing, I'm living proof that you can live on very, very little and keep your cost of living low. But that's, there's some very big caveats to that. And I've worked very hard to attain that. And part of it was also just luck in, in finding a place. So I think people need to be mindful if they are deciding to live in a tiny house to do some research and to look into the cost because that's, it's not as simple as, as some people might think. Yeah, for sure. And there's, there's stuff there that I hadn't considered and there's, there's so much more to it. So I think it's, yeah, people have to, have to look beyond just that, that initial. Yeah. And then. As we've talked about, it's mm. not legal either, right? So you, it's, it's there's a bit of a risk there. So mm. I, I would encourage people, as I'm very much in, enjoying living in the tiny house and that experience and the journey, I would encourage people if they are wanting to do that to definitely do it. But yeah, just know that that there are some things to consider. Yeah, do your research definitely. So now that you're in and you're settled and you know you're. You're at the end, well, not at the end, but at the end of what was a big project and a big undertaking. What what have you personally discovered about living life in a tiny home? Yeah, it was it's been an interesting journey. One thing that I have discovered is how easily we've adapted to a smaller space. Cause when you look at the numbers, you're like, okay, two thousand square feet to two hundred, mm-hmm. you know, it's ten times smaller. What am I gonna do? Some people's closets are two hundred square feet. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I was surprised that part of it was planning and part of it was that I had built the house. So I had thought through how our life would look. But one great example is that when I had started the build, both Sarah and I were working in offices in other places. And since then, we are now both working from home. And that was not a consideration when I was building the house and designing it in that we had to have an office space. And so with our living room, we actually use that as our office. And so the table is now the office space. And one would think that, oh my goodness, I'm going to have my office in my living room. That's not going to work. <laughs> Surprisingly, it works pretty great. Actually, it's not that much of an inconvenience. And so being able to adapt to a smaller space actually was easier than I thought it would be. And and in that, I found that I've also appreciated like every square inch of the house. There's different mm-hmm. levels to the house. I'm in the loft. And it feels like a different space than being in the living room. And part of it is, yes, I built the house myself, but it's also just when you're in a smaller space, you're using that space more and you just appreciate it more. When If you have a house with three or four rooms and this room I never really go in and it's just storage, you don't appreciate it. So I've really found that I'm very much appreciating the house. Mm. Um, Another thing is living with a partner in 200 square feet. That was something that even though mm-hmm. Sarah is is also minimalist, it's like we're going to share 200 square feet and we're going to have to work around each other and in the kitchen, in the bathroom, in the bedroom. And you could see that being a, a problem, but I've actually thought it's totally fine. We Part of it is that mindset of we decided to live this way. It was a choice. And part of it was the design. So an example of that is I think I've got seven foot 11 on the inside from side to side. I can pretty much touch each wall if I stretch far enough between my feet and my hands. Mm-hmm. But in the kitchen, um, I have on the opposite side of the kitchen is a closet where we keep our clothes and our, and our shoes and such. And it would be tempting to make that closet as deep as possible to maximize storage space. But thinking about the functionality of the space, I actually made the closet, I think it's maybe 10 inches deep. It's not very deep. 
And in that way, it does store our shoes and our coats, but it also allows a lot more space within the kitchen area that we can move and walk around. And that was very key to the functionality. So living with someone sharing that space, I would have thought, well, that's going to be difficult, but we've actually really enjoyed it. And we find that we just enjoy each other more and we have more quality time together. And and it's, it's really been a great opportunity that way. I'm so glad it works because yeah, the, the idea of, of moving into that, that tiny space. And I guess the idea of not being able to get away, but that's within the four walls. If you need time apart, there's the great outdoors, (laughs) you know, you can get outside and be apart. You don't have to exist permanently within within the tiny home but yeah for sure and that's another thing is actually I thought that winter would be more difficult as well because yeah now it's very very cold and we can't go outside but or it's not as easy to go outside and yeah I didn't feel like it was like that way at all I felt it's been fine so you're right if if for some reason you need some space yeah I'll go for a walk I'll go for a bike ride Mm -hmm. I'll go into town and run some errands if I really really have to but yeah it's it's it definitely forces you to work on your relationship to to be a good communicator to have a healthy relationship because if you don't it's just it's just not going to work if you're fighting all the time you can't get away from each yeah, other yeah. right so and going into it we were we were we already had a good relationship but yeah it's 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 a consideration but you're right if if you need to you can go outside go for a walk spend some time elsewhere and that was a big part of my design too right and and that changed a little bit with the pandemic but very much it was like I don't need to have a gym in my house. I don't need to have an office. I don't need to have all these things, a library. The house is for these certain tasks, Mm -hmm. sleeping, eating, cooking. And we have gotten rid of a lot of those things because I was in the mindset of, I don't need to have everything in my house all at once. And sometimes that, again, with the office example, it's a little easier if we did have an office. But I find that the, what we'll call sacrifices are much much more beneficial than, than what we're giving up. Right. Mm. So like paying for that 2000 square foot house, again, the, the big mortgage, heating that space, cooling that space. The, and I found anytime I was living in a bigger house, I was just filling it with more things, right? It's just, Oh, there's an, an office. Here. I'm going to fill it full of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I found that although we have to kind of modify our life a little bit, that it's absolutely worth it for, for the benefits that we're getting from living tiny. Yeah, it was funny before when you mentioned about really appreciating every, you know, inch of space that you've got. I'm like, there is nothing like the, for me personally, like the resentment of cleaning a room that no one uses. Like when I'm dusting a room that I'm like, I don't think anyone's even been in this room since the last time I dusted it. Like that, that eats me. That, that absolutely kills me. And it's like, it's so great to think of, um, that that every inch of that place, not only did you build it and put your blood, sweat, and tears into it, but that you use it and you appreciate it, and that gratitude has got to you know got to be beneficial in the big scheme of things. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, it's, it's great for for mental health and, and mindfulness too, right? Mm. And and also just cleaning. Cleaning does not take nearly as long in two hundred square feet. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's a lot quicker. It's, it's pretty absolutely. nice. Absolutely. So yeah. you have started a podcast called In Over My Head, um, which I've been loving and listening to. Can you tell us about it and what you talk about on your podcast? Yeah. So In Over My Head, it really stemmed from from my my tiny living experience in that. Part of that reason was my environmental impact. So 
someone who cares about the environment, I thought I'm going to live my values and, and I want to live in a tiny house because that's going to lower my environmental impact. And I did that. But when I started to think about the other aspects of my life, as far as, okay, how do I get around? What do I eat? Um, flying and, and where do the things that I buy come from and, and the resources those are taking? I felt overwhelmed. I felt in over my head. And so I decided I wanted to talk to experts and to try to dispel some myths and to figure out how we can address the climate crisis in a constructive way. So In Over My Head is actually an interview style podcast where I talk to environmental experts from around the world about various aspects of environmentalism. And I come at it from a very personal perspective in that I'm one person, I'm trying to save the planet, I'm feeling overwhelmed. What am I doing that's effective and what's not effective? And and how can we all be better stewards of the environment and, and help with the climate crisis. So each season, I focus on a different topic. Season one was funded by a, a media corporation called Tell a Story Hive, and it was about my local community and the environmental work we were doing. Season two is about transportation. So I took a deep dive into the various aspects of how does walking, how does driving, how do planes impact our environmental impact? And so each season talking about a different topic and, and trying to help people feel less in over their head when it comes to to saving the planet. Yeah, and some of those chats are so informative. Like I think my favourite one so far is the one about um, water. And I learned so much about Good. wastewater and water pollution and stuff. And I'm like, I thought I knew. <laughs> I thought I knew this stuff. But I didn't realise about, you know, water runoff from, from gardens and parks and, you know, people not picking up their poop in the in the park or the garden mm-hmm. and where that ends up and yeah there's there's things that I thought I knew which I clearly didn't because I learned a lot from it so um oh, I'm yeah so it's, glad. A, it's a great it's a great show so I could keep talking to you for ages about tiny home but um we should probably let all our listeners get back to their lives so <laughs> where can people find you if they want to know more about what you're doing or follow along on your journey um where do you hang out online yeah, so I actually I don't use social media. I don't have any social media. The easiest place to find me would be at the the website www.inovermyheadpodcast.com. I have my email there if you want to get in touch and you can follow the show on that website. But other than that, I am off the grid. Oh, perfect. Sounds idyllic. So I will put um a link to your website and the podcast in the show notes. So if anyone missed out on it, you can head to our website and catch it there. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Michael. It's been a really fascinating chat. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tara. And we'll be back with you again next week. Thanks for joining us. We'd love it if you'd leave a review or tell all your friends about us so that they too can be uncluttered. If you would like to connect with us, you can find us at beuncluttered.com.au or on social media or on our own websites at rebeccamazino.com.au and basklifecoaching.com.